I had this idea. How do I bring all of these skills that I've learned over decades in big agencies to social impact sectors? So global health and development, climate and sustainability, media and society, policy. And the narrative was, and still is in many pockets, you know, I can bring these incredible skills to these places where there are gaps or there's a dearth of these skill sets. And it's really a false narrative. And you start to work with organizations and you pretty quickly realize that there are incredibly brilliant people doing amazing work against wildly complex topics. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by bringing your true self, you're in the right place. Let me open this episode by saying that right after I finished my Mother's Day episode, the one with the leadership lessons from my mom, my wife pointed out to me that this year, Mother's Day is actually falling on the 14th. So I guess I was a week early. It's kind of funny, but the good news is that if you haven't listened to it yet, you still have time to listen to it on time for Mother's Day. Our guest today is another old friend of mine. Jonathan Rosoff and I worked together at Digitus. From there, he went on to a couple other senior roles in other agencies. However, about 10 years ago, he merged his marketing skills with his passion for service and founded Formative, an agency of which now he is the CEO. Formative is a very unique company. They blend marketing, technology, and policy expertise to design and launch campaigns, programs, and platforms that maximize the impact for social good and purpose-driven brands. Their clients range from Microsoft to the World Bank to several foundations. They help tackle big global health issues. And as you will hear, they also played a role in the flattening of the curve at the beginning of the COVID pandemic. As you can imagine, this was a very broad conversation covering topics like when and how to follow your entrepreneurial instinct? Are there other ways to pursue your passion if you're not doing it through your work? And then how do you effectively blend business approaches with policy issues? So it's a very rich episode and I hope you will enjoy it. All right, Jonathan, welcome to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. It's great. You and I have been colleagues a long time ago, but you have gone on to do some pretty amazing things after that. So let's start this conversation, have you give a little bit of background about yourself for my listeners and sort of how you got here? That sounds great. Thanks, Dino. Yeah, we, we've known each other for way too many decades, <laughs> but it's been a great ride. So, you know, I, I started out my career doing consulting work and, and pretty quickly, mostly for corporate entities, and pretty quickly realized that that wasn't where my kind of heart wanted me to be. I come from a background of advocates, socialists, communists, who have spent their lives fighting for things like school meals programs in New York City and building housing and supportive services for homeless populations and people who are musicians and artists. And I think that kind of informs who I am and what I tend to do. So I've always kind of gravitated to places with 
a little more latitude, a lot of creativity, innovation, where we worked at Digitas in the 1990s, trying to convince people that this digital thing was actually real and going to be big to kind of Razorfish and marketing uh, technology and systems and tech platforms to organizations today like uh, Gates Ventures or Breakthrough Energy, where they're doing just super interesting things and helping to deliver impact in global health, in climate and sustainability and other, other sectors. So that's just a little bit about my background. You are right now CEO and founder of your own agency. It's something you've done for, I think I lost track. Was it 10 years? Am I correct? Yeah. Yeah. We just celebrated our 10 year anniversary. Well, congratulations. But you came from a, between Digitas, Razorfish, like pretty rigorous, large agency background. So as you move through the, the corporate ranks, if you will, how did you start thinking about the type of manager and leader that you wanted to be? What were some of the the key traits? I think some of it is just kind of a natural evolution and you learn as you go. You learn from the successes. You learn a lot more from the failures. You know, you you talk a lot about authentic leadership and I think uh, a lot of that is figuring out how you bring yourself into your work, what you share of your your life and how that influences your leadership style. I mean, I think that figuring out how to be comfortable in your own skin and what that implies in terms of how you interact with people, how you inspire people. You know, I'm, I'm goofy. I tell bad dad jokes. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I sometimes sing in meetings. I'm going to interrupt you for a second because our listeners should know that you're actually an amazing singer. Well, <laughs> so you, you. Si- you singing in meetings would be very different than... Yeah, I sing with the Seattle Symphony and I sing in a dad band and, you know, arts are very important to me. But yes, I can belt it out <laughs> when I need to. So how was the process of being able to bring more of yourself into the workplace? You know, especially starting out in places, maybe in your early years, working into corporate environments and things of that nature. And what were maybe some of the moments when there were aha moments for you on the value of showing up as yourself versus trying to put on a persona? I think in my earlier years, I had this vision of what a leader or an executive would would be. I didn't really understand that you can only inspire people or motivate people if they trust you, if you're credible, if you if they believe that you will do the things that you do and that they can talk to you and confide in you and tell you both when things are going incredibly well and when things are not going uh, as well. And so a lot of it is about building trust. So, you know, in my earlier years, I had much more of a kind of focused, disciplined approach, I tried to kind of tamp down the the kind of personal aspects of my life. That's what you're taught in business school. You're, you know, you're buttoned up, you, you know, you say certain things, you don't say other things. And what I find is when I give a little bit of my life, when I talk a little bit about how I feel about things, when I'm honest about 
where I fail or where I've made mistakes and I own them and I try and correct them, those tend to be the points where people say, this is somebody who's real. And as long as I'm following through on the things that I say, and these are authentic, these stories, these ideas are authentic to who I am as a person, I build trust and credibility with people. And, uh, and I find that they're willing to forgive some of the mistakes, which we inevitably all make, regardless of who we are, and to work in more collaborative ways, to be happier at their jobs, to want to go the extra mile to make work successful. Yeah, I love what you just said, because I think a lot of the time when authenticity is discussed, people think about it as, oh, just be more of myself as a superficial thing, you know, and oh, do, do I need to share the, the silly things, which is important. But I think when you talk about authenticity in the corporate environment as a component of building trust, it has to be balanced by the delivery, the accountability on the other side. It's almost like the more you deliver, right, that buys you latitude to bring more of yourself into the work and, and, and really building that trust. Yeah, it's, it's a great point. I mean, we talk a lot about authenticity, but <laughs> Donald Trump is authentic. He actually, you know what he's going to do. He is consistent. And also, he's terrible in, in so many ways because it's not married with empathy or kindness or accountability or decency, right? And you can be authentically shitty, <laughs> right? And so there's the component of being yourself and really being true to what you believe and also having some of those other attributes that make people want to collaborate with you and be motivated by the vision that you're setting out. I love what you just said because the foundation of this podcast and the foundation of my coaching work is that when you are truly yourself authenticity means basically knowing yourself being your true self if you go to the etymology of the word in greece in, in ancient greek and my whole premise is that when you're truly yourself you're most effective and we talk about authenticity there is a moral value attached to it at the same time but the reality is that the power of, of authenticity as a performance driver, it's moral neutral. Right. You just pointed out the effectiveness. If you truly embrace yourself, if you're a horrible person, you will be very successful at being a horrible person. And so what we're talking about is then when this authenticity is connected to a set of additional values that have to do with ultimately believing that we are responsible on this planet for something more than ourselves. Right. I mean, how many times have you heard the phrase, well, you know, you know, that's just him or her. And, but, you know, he's a good guy. She does a good job. Right. But authentically, you know exactly who they are. 
right? So you've got to marry the other pieces in ways that actually build towards something better and motivate people. Yeah. I think this is a great place to move to the next question, which is you had a very long and successful career in traditional big agencies from Digitas to Razorfish. And then you decided to start your own agency with a very specific slant. Yeah. How was that process? What was scary? What was exciting about it? Take me back. We, you said we're 10 years into it. So let's go back to 10 years ago as you're thinking about this. Yeah. When I started Formative, I had this idea. And the idea was, how do I bring all of these skills that I've learned over decades in big agencies to social impact sectors? So global health and development, climate and sustainability, media and society, policy. And the narrative was, and still is in many pockets, you know, I can bring these incredible skills to these places where there are gaps or there's, you know, a, a dearth of these skill sets. And it's really a false narrative. And you kind of get into, you start to work with organizations and you pretty quickly realize that there are incredibly brilliant people doing amazing work against wildly complex topics with, an, you know, vast ecosystems around the globe of funders and implementation partners and advocates and policymakers. And you start to look at this ecosystem and you quickly realize that people are trying to affect change over 20, 30 year time horizons, not over the course of, you know, a quick campaign to get a bump in brand favorability or whatever the metric is. And you also realize it's very hard to measure the the outcomes of what you're doing without working back against the theory of change to say, what are the shorter term metrics or goals of, you know, outputs that we're creating that are reaching those outcomes and so forth. So I went to school figuratively and learned a lot and started to hire in people with sector-specific expertise who could really deeply inform the work that we were doing. And we've created an organization that is highly capable of solving really complex problems in these areas. In the early days, we didn't have that. And we didn't have a brand behind us or a lot of resources or assets. And that's the scary part <laughs> when you kind of go, well, I have networks of people who know the work that I do and they, you know, they care about me and they understand that I'm going to deliver great things. But going into a room where you're competing against very large established firms with big reputations, you quickly realize that you have to be able to showcase a differentiation. You have to be able to convince people to take a leap of faith. Just to give a little bit of context to our listeners, is there like a public example of a campaign or something that you've worked on that can explain the type of work that you're doing and so that they have context as to where this is happening? Sure. I mean, I'll give, I'll give a, a, a couple. In late... 2019 or early 2020, 
we were working with the University of Washington, Fred Hutch, Seattle Children's, and Gates Ventures on a program called the Seattle Flu Study, which was meant to understand the vectors of disease spread uh, with the hopes of being able to test a number of potential interventions that could stop the spread of a future pandemic. And lo and behold, in (laughs) January, February of 2020, the real deal happened. And we actually found the first cases of community spread in the nation in our samples and quickly had to pivot that platform for self-testing to help provide information that would guide decision-making in the early days of the pandemic and flatten the curve, which, which had a whole series of challenges. But we were responsible for building that platform, recruiting people into those study arms, doing all of the communications around it. At one point, we were, you know, we were working with another organization to do PR as we became the epicenter of the emerging pandemic. It was a crazy, wild, deeply satisfying and deeply frustrating uh, experience. But that's the kind of thing that we do. We've built global health platforms for Gates Ventures and other organizations. We do communications programs for folks like Bayer Crop Sciences, for National Geographic, and the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, among many others. The firm, as a band of applying uh, your expertise in marketing and business towards advancing the good of humanity through different programs and foundations, how has that goal informed the way that you designed and built the firm as you were growing it? Some of the processes, the philosophies, etc. At the core of it, we need people who are deeply interested, excited by, and uh, in many cases have the skill sets to deliver in these kinds of environments. So there's this hybrid functional expertise of Uh, digital and integrated marketing, and all of the skill sets within that rubric, married with people who are deep in global health, life sciences, because we do a lot of work in Alzheimer's and neurodegenerative disease with some of our clients, climate and sustainability. So we've had to both hire and figure out how we bring freelancers in who have uh, both the knowledge base and different sets of expertise. So we have people who are deep journalists who've spent decades on the ground in different countries who really understand the models and how people with lived experience will react to some of these programs or can collaborate to build some of these programs. And so as we've built, it's been a little bit different, I think, than how many other agencies would build, uh, would build their, their organization. How about like the internal operating, how you treat people, how people progress and things of the nature? Has that been informed by the overall mission of the company? And are there things that you can share? I think that in general, we operate against a series of 
core values about how we treat people, how we collaborate, what equity means for us. There are growth and development paths within our organization that account for the the kind of work that we do and having to understand the nuances of how programs get executed across the, the globe. I would say we treat people the way we would treat people in any organization that we would collaborate with or partner with or build, which is mutual respect, a lot of collaboration, helping to figure or, or thinking about how people's work styles influence what they do and how we can make that better for them across the organization. You know, interestingly, we hire, we hire people who are incredibly curious, who show a capability to work effectively in, you know, in teams, etc. Some of our most successful people are introverts. You know, so I love the book Quiet. Uh, and I believe that there are superpowers in the ability to listen and ruminate and not necessarily be the most gregarious person in the in the room. And we tend to have people, and maybe this is sector specific and maybe not, but we tend to have a lot of people who want to go deep, who want to think deeply, and who have a lot of contributions to the work that we do. And so we try as best we can to make space for that. You mentioned that you have core values for the organization. Did you go through a formal process of articulating the core values? We did. We went through a formal process of articulating those values. It's in our employee handbook. We reinforce them as best we can. We do an employee survey, and many of the questions on that survey on an annual basis are around how we're delivering uh, against those values. And I'll tell you, quite honestly, that for the first time this year, we've gotten some tough feedback on some of those. As the market has gotten tougher and we've had to focus uh, more in other areas in order to kind of keep business growing, we have done less in certain areas than we've done historically. The, you know, the situation with the pandemic and what's happening in the world, I think people are exhausted And we've gotten some feedback that we're responding to and some things we can respond to and, and try and do better against those things. And some things are circumstantial or contextual and hard to control. I'm curious for somebody who was also going through the process of building a company, how early into the journey of the company did you articulate the core values and then as the company evolved, was there a need to maybe rethink them and rearticulate them, whether because of better knowledge of the environment or maybe to bring in more voices as the company grew? We did it very early in the evolution of the company. They have evolved a little bit, but not much because I think that At the core, you define the values based on who you are and who you want to be, not necessarily on the contextual factors that are kind of hitting you from different perspectives, right? So we are, our core values are around things like 
being bold and driven and accountable, right? So we we want to be confident about our perspectives. We want to, you know, we want to be quick and innovative. We want to own when we do great work and own when we don't deliver what we say we will and make good on it. We want to be collaborative. Uh, it's how we get to great work. We often talk about productive debate. And, you know, the fact that until you actually have real discussion and debate on a topic or a piece of work, you haven't really teased out what kind of the root causes are and how you get to great answers, right? We want to be imaginative. And then we want to be respectful of other people as we work. We want to have a sense of humor. You know, we want people to have fun along the way. They spend, you know, I I always say I'm, and I really mean this, I'm deeply honored by the talent that we have and the fact that our people want to spend what turns out to be a big chunk of their time working with us on our issues and working with their peers collaboratively. And so, you know, how do you make that fun? How do you make that a place where people want to be versus a place where they feel that they're doing good work, but it's just a place they're biding time? That's great. I want to go back a little bit to something that we slightly touched upon, but I think it's really important. You know, when you talk about the idea of bringing business skills to this type of problems and issues, what are some of the pros and cons and like biggest differences in in bringing a traditional corporate approach? Or there's a lot of talk right now about like bringing a VC approach to cause work and things of that nature. What are the pros and cons of those approaches and how should people think about it? I think the pros are that there, there's some great frameworks, there's some great tools, there's infrastructure that the private sector tends to invest in and evolve at faster rates than the social impact sector. And so, you know, how do you bring in expertise, for example, in AI and machine learning to tackle problems of who's eligible and how do you match people to clinical trials, for example, or to find, you know, patterns in disease states or to do better imaging work and to spur collaboration for new findings around therapeutics, right? Like all of those things, you need private sector partners for really advanced analytics, computing power. So there's often a lot of collaboration with folks like Microsoft and Google and others in order to, to work on those kinds of projects. There's also inherent bias in those, in those kinds of things. And I think a lot of people talk about that. And I think there's also much more limited input and kind of collaboration with people in regions and countries where that work is implemented. And so there's, you know, there's a, a big push in figuring out how do you create partnerships that really, that really legitimately incorporate 
global south or countries that are going to be recipients or that are going to be hopefully collaborators and innovators in uh, developing these kinds of, of solutions. And so you get that less when you're, you know, when you're kind of in a VC or a, or a private sector driven set of initiatives. That's great. As you think about your own personal definition of success, how has that changed across the years? Well, I think I think one of the biggest areas where that's changed is in my earlier years, I really defined success in terms of my own career progression. And some of that has to do with just stage of life. And some of that has to do with your ability to really impact other people and the world around you. Today, I think about success much more in terms of the success of the people at my organization and what the legacy of this organization will be, what kind of success we're driving in the sectors in which we operate. So the SCAN program is a great example of that. I look at that and say, you know, in our small part, we helped give information to, you know, the Department of Health, the CDC, um, we were helping to flatten the curve in the initial days of the pandemic. You know, we are providing information and best practice approaches to help people understand how to fight disease states across the, the globe, for example. And so I start to think about the impact that we're having across the world. I think about success in terms of what is my impact on my community. I'm on the board of the Seattle Opera. And I care deeply about the organization and the future of arts uh, in Seattle and in a much broader context in, in the, the, the country and around the world. And I see a lot of degradation in how people think about the value of, uh, of the arts and communities. And so I, success would be having an impact on those kinds of issues. Fabulous. I have a question more for the younger, <laughs> some advice from like the younger people. You know, there's a lot of talk around find what you love and do it. And I think it's fair to assume that you are now in a place where you are doing what you love or you're marrying your professional passion with your personal passions. Yeah. How was the journey to get there? I wouldn't say circuitous, but I would say it's never linear. You know, from my upbringing, I've always had this side, which is entrepreneurial and interested in social causes and interested in the arts. And it just came out along the way and I found opportunities. So at Digitas, as you know, I started the Digitas Follies to put on a, you know, a show. And I worked with Elizabeth Davis Edwards, you know, to help teach a module for her internship program to bring underprivileged kids in and put them through a program so that they would have job opportunities on the other side. And in other phases of my career, I found ways of uh, connecting with the community. The Seattle, Seattle Opera is a good uh, example of that. I think my advice would be find those opportunities along the way that build cumul cumulatively into something that is a body of knowledge, 
that feeds your soul. And if you want to, then figure out your way into those uh, those places if that's where your if that's where your heart is. But I don't think you have to be starting a social impact company, you know, or going to a nonprofit in order to follow your heart, in order to find ways of bringing that into your life uh, and figuring out what makes you happy and where you can have an impact. I think it's an excellent point to stop our professional part of the conversation. So for people who are interested in learning more about you and formative, maybe even work with formative to make the world a better place, where can they go to find you? Best places go to www.formativeco.com and check us out or drop me a line. I'm always, always open to conversations. I'm at jonathan at formativeco.com and would love to talk to people. Fabulous. Now we get to the personal part of the conversation, even though you've covered some of this indirectly in this conversation. What is a hobby that you have outside of work and how has that influenced and potentially impacted your career? Well, I've talked a lot about the arts, but that's a huge passion for me. So I sing with the Seattle Symphony. I am on the board of the Seattle Opera. I work with other arts organizations in the community. And importantly, I sing with the dad band in dive bars. And I love them all equally. And the, the point I want to make about that is I tend to be a perfectionist and I tend to be someone that likes to lead. And all of those pursuits, I think, keep me humble. I am accomplished, but I am, I see people to know that I'm, I'm good enough to know I'm not good enough. <laughs> and also the practice and discipline of, having to work in a, an ensemble where you're reliant on other people and you need to be accountable to them is important. And the, the willingness to both operate at a very professional level and also to be able to let it go and just have fun in a dive bar, I think is great practice for the workplace. What are some of the songs in the dead band repertoire? Some of them artists covered. Okay, so a lot of originals, but we do for covers, we do Beatles and Squeeze and Frankie Valley and all all sorts of bad 80s pop. Are you one of the writers for the originals? I'm not actually. We have an incredibly talented songwriter who's been doing it for decades uh, and Rand tends to write uh, most of the songs. I sometimes write lyrics. That's great. Now, my favorite question of the podcast, every era has business jargons, expressions and phrases that kind of end up losing meaning and being annoying. Which is the one that drives you crazy? I'm going to say this and also admit that we all do it and I sometimes do it. How many times do people write, so honored to have been invited to, grateful for the opportunity to in social channels, and you're not really honored or grateful, you're just promoting the thing that you do. <laughs> we all do it. But sometimes I look at it and I say, are you, are you really honored? 
to do that? <laughs> or is, is this just a way of letting everyone know that you're doing something super cool? And so I try and be a little bit more circumspect about, you know, how I frame the things that I'm doing. So you're against the humble brag. I agree. I'm like, just go for the straight up brag. Yeah. I kicked ass. Totally. Own it. Or like, or, hey, check it out. I'm doing the such and such thing at, uh, you know, at the panel. It's one of those things where it's like, it's very transparent and it's become almost a trope of like what everyone does. And, and I also, as I said up front, like we all do it because it's easy, it, an easy way of getting out there. Anyway. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Same. Final question. I call it food for the body or food for the soul. And you can choose if you want to go the body route, you can share a recipe or a drink or something that inspires you. Or if you go the soul route, music, book, novel, movie, piece of art, play, something that inspires you. All sorts of music inspires me. Okay, so here's one. Recently, I heard a piece on NPR, or maybe not even so recently, about a Ukrainian group called Daka Braka. And they are touring around and making incredible original music and also using it as a way to raise awareness for what's needed and necessary in Ukraine. And I think that's super cool. Fantastic. Jonathan, thank you so much for participating. It's been great catching up and a lot of really powerful learning. Likewise, Dino, I really appreciate it. And it's great to see you. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. If you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Also, make sure you subscribe to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Audible, please leave us a stellar rating or a review. Stick around because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. For more links for Jonathan Informative, go to the episode page on my podcast website. The site is al4ep.com, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. Follow the podcast on Twitter and Instagram. The handle in both places is at AL4EDP with the letter D. And on Facebook, look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, arranged, and recorded by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's a song about being there for others when they need us, and it's called Better Day. Sky could
Day. 